Welcome to the Veterinarian Success Podcast. I am your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I have a special guest, Dr. Elaine Clemenson, who is a veterinarian, a coach, and passionate about organizational culture. Elaine, thank you so much for joining me and taking the time out to chat a little bit. Hi, Isaiah, and uh, a huge thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, and I've talked a number of different times about the power of social media or like LinkedIn can be helpful, can also be spammy and gross. I've seen that on my end where I get people that tell me stuff that I'm like, yeah, I know that's totally scammy and not great. But that was actually how we connected was within LinkedIn. And always when I have these kind of connections and get to meet and chat with someone, you're like, this is why I use those platforms because of these cool connections. So just want to encourage anyone that maybe has had a bad experience on various different social medias that there can be a lot of good from it as well. Yeah, you know what? That's a great place to start, actually, Isaiah, because I have to admit, I have only been on LinkedIn for a few years. And I guess my motivation was I started to dive back into what I wanted to do when I grew up, what came after running a veterinary practice for 20 years and being a partner, a locum six years prior to that. And so I decided I needed a LinkedIn profile. And I'm going to just correct you on one thing. I am right now studying leadership and making a decision if I'm going to continue on and get my master's in leadership. I hold a certificate in values-based leadership from Royal Roads University, which is a university in British Columbia, Canada. And I'm currently completing my executive coaching certificates with a goal of being certified with the International Coach Federation as a certified executive coach, which really I think it's coaching is coaching. It's a leadership coaching goal that I have. So thanks for calling me a coach. I'm an aspiring coach, building skills. Yeah, you're probably not giving yourself enough credit for it. But with that, One of the fun things that I took away from our first conversation when we got connected was, can you tell me why canaries and coal mines matter in veterinary medicine? Because there's a really good analogy that I loved, and I think that's a good place to start. You know what? You're going to just dive right into talking my language. I love it, Isaiah. So I'll give you a little background on where that comes from. Last year when I was doing my leadership studies, I came across an article written about organizational culture. And organizational culture is really just the way we do things in our culture, how we do things around here in our veterinary practice, in your financial management office and culture. And so this article, the writer had interviewed a social psychologist. Her name is Christina Maslick. And it was around an article that had recently come out that the World Health Organization in 2019 classified burnout in its list of diseases. And this social psychologist, Christina Maslick, spoke to that because she had issues with that. And she saw it as a big problem because in her words, seeing burnout as a disease causes us to see conditions like compassion fatigue as a problem with the individual rather than a problem with the organization. Does that make sense? Yeah, because it turns around an issue that may be someone else's. Like if management's doing something that's causing issues for you, it is now your fault because you're not doing what you should be handling this differently, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, it puts all the responsibility on the individual. And she used this really beautiful metaphor. And she said to the interviewer, just, I want you to just picture a beautiful flock of canaries They're preening, their feathers are clean and shiny, they're singing beautifully, and you invite them to fly into your coal mine. They go into the coal mine, and when they come back out, the birds aren't singing anymore, they're covered in soot, and they're sick. Would we say, wow, what's wrong with those stupid birds? How did they make themselves sick? It's so obvious when you use that metaphor that the coal mine made the birds sick. And I just think that is a really powerful metaphor to think about our veterinary organizations with what we're seeing in the profession. High levels of burnout, high levels of compassion fatigue, high levels of mental health disease, high suicide rates in veterinary medicine. Don't get me wrong, I am a huge believer in owning your own personal wellness, taking ownership of it, advocating for it. I love the dialogue in our profession about the need for wellness, about the need for healthy boundaries. 
But for a long time, something didn't quite sit right with me. And this comment and this metaphor from Dr. Maslick really resonated with me what it was. And it was that it's not up to the individual. It's also up to the leaders in our organizations. That's kind of what's attracted me to the work I want to do in veterinary medicine. Yeah, just kind of building on that. So when you look out in the landscape of veterinary medicine today and thinking about where maybe there's been success in having the narrative and maybe talking about the challenges that are there when before it was kind of trying to be swept under the rug, but where is there still a lack of addressing maybe the core key issues and you see that that's being overlooked? Do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, I think there's so much change happening right now. And it's a really interesting time, a global pandemic aside. I think it's becoming more and more apparent that there's a real shift going on in society in general, not just in veterinary medicine. People are desperate for change. People are desperate for leadership and organizations that they can trust. I don't know if you've ever looked at something. It's called the Edelman Trust Barometer. And it's a global report that comes out. In January of 2020, Edelman reported that despite our global economy near full employment, none of the four main societal institutions that measure government, business, medicine, NGOs, in all of those organizations, there is the public, the people have a very low level of trust. There's a shift that's happening that people want organizations that they can believe in, where there is ethical, sustainable practices, where there is a focus on the greater good, the community, society, the organization itself, but also community and society. And so with that in mind, looking at our organizations, I think we have to start looking at the leadership in those organizations and how do we regain the trust of the individuals that work within them, as well as just trust of all our stakeholders, our clients, our communities. And so in this time of sort of rapid change and expanding technology, the old systems we've used just maybe aren't going to be as effective as they could be. We need to move from a top-down hierarchical model to a more collaborative model of networks. How do you do that? How do you get from where we are now to collaboration, creative thinking, innovative thinking? It's a challenge. So I think that is where we're at. And what we're doing right now is there is one thing that seems just in the last couple of years is there's this huge dialogue happening in the profession, looking at ways we can work smarter, not harder, looking at opportunities to collaborate, looking at how we can leverage technology to actually work for our practices and improve the lives of the people within our practices. So I think there's a lot of really good things coming out of that. But when we see this big change, we're also going to need to look at how do we change our institutions? How do we start teaching and educating people to think collaboratively and creatively and move from sort of the individual to what we all need within the organization? And that's going to have to also start with our the way we're educating our students, I believe. Yeah, it's all trying to address things that are difficult. And it's not just only in veterinary medicine. And I wanted to ask, actually, I would be surprised if the answer is yes, but have you ever heard of the book, The Fourth Turning? Have you ever heard of this turning. No, idea or concept? Yeah, tell me about it, Isaiah. So it's not veterinary medicine specific, but so Neil Howe and William Strauss wrote the book in 1996. And so it was more of a study of the United States, but it's talking about the different cycles in history. And a lot of what you just talked about is you go through these periods where things that worked in the past will no longer work in the future. And so what they did in 96 is they kind of looked into the future, but then they also looked in the past and looked at these cycles of four generations. So this fourth turning. So you have a thing that happens that kind of galvanizes everyone together and everyone rallies around and it's the collective is like, we are going to defeat this. The last one would have been World War II. So everyone came together and said, we're going to defeat, so this American way of looking at, but we're going to defeat Nazi Germany. We're going to defeat the Japanese empire. We're going to win and then we're going to come through this. And so you had all these people that saw this common enemy, right? Before that, it was the civil war in the United States. So that was kind of that galvanizing event. You go through it, 
prior to that, it was more of the American Revolution and some other things. But it's interesting because after that happens, you have a generation that follows and then you have another generation, you have another generation. That fourth generation is where all the fractures in the foundation happen, where everyone's like, this is broken, this isn't set up because everything was set up four generations ago to fix and work what was happening there. And it's so different now. And everyone's gone through good times, right? Like after that big, scary event. And it's amazing that, and I've not read the book, so it's kind of, you know, shame on me for talking about it without reading it, but I've listened to a number of different podcasts talking about it and heard Neil Howe talk. And it's amazing talking about how they kind of projected it forward and said, in 96, we have this great financial crisis in the future. So 2008, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. the world just kind of changes and there's going to be a global pandemic at some point. And maybe those will be some of the pieces of what starts this change. And so it kind of runs through 2030. And then typically in these four turnings, it's not always pleasant, but it is shaping the way the world the will look in you know, the next 80 to 100 years. Yeah. The shift is never fun. Yeah. That mirrors some of the reading I've done for sure, Isaiah, that the shift is happening. And I don't know if you've ever read Johan Hari. He wrote Lost Connections. And that was his most recent book. And The Scream was another one looking at the war on drugs. Actually, a lot of it focused on Vancouver's Lower East Side. And the way our institutions and our polit I don't want to be political here, but the way our government, our institutions, our economy, our businesses have evolved in the capitalistic system has led to this huge discrepancy in wealth, this huge gap. We are both more, I believe, more connected in the world today and less connected in the world today. And I think people are just craving something different. I don't know what that different is going to be. And I do agree what's happened with the economic crisis, the pandemic. Where are we going to be in another five or 10 years when we come out the other side? It's going to be really interesting. It's going to be a challenging time and interesting to see where we end up, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. Again, a lot of the people that would be in society kind of helping make those decisions and guiding, they've never been through anything like this. So it's kind of the big moment in their, a lot of their careers, whether you're a baby boomer or you're a millennial or Gen Z, it's like still that big moment. And it will be interesting to see how it shapes. And we talked, again, not to get political, but like right before this, just there's so much stuff going on, like you said, south of the border here in the US with a lot of issues that have happened, call it pre-COVID, just through societal and It's so many other things that are coming to a head. It's not just the U.S., though, Isaiah. It's easy as Canadians for us to sit and follow our big brother to the south, but it's happening around the world. It's happening in countries everywhere. And I think it's an interesting thing. You just spoke to the different generations. But one thing I see is we're all in the same storm. You've probably heard this metaphor. We're all in our own boats, but we're all in the same storm. And when you say, what are the good things happening right now in veterinary medicine? is that we're all going through this storm, whether you're a boomer, a Gen X, a millennial, a Gen Z, we're all going through this storm. And I see that we're all maybe trying a little bit harder to listen to each other's perspectives. Maybe that's just something I see, but I see in veterinary medicine, this sort of conversations, these conversations that are happening, like on your podcast, that are bringing people from different backgrounds, different experiences together to try and figure it out and figure out how do we move forward to handle the big challenges in the world, but to handle the challenges that are happening right now in veterinary medicine, because there's some significant ones. And I guess that's our strength. Our strength is the people. Absolutely. Sorry, I interrupted you again. (laughs) No, this is the way it's going to run. And again, I'm fortunate enough where I got to chat with you before. So I kind of have an idea of some of the different things that we chatted on that I'm excited to bring up. And you talk about a storm and I think that's a good transition almost to take a step back and talk about early career for you and thinking about like a storm and this galvanizing event with you and your husband. Can you share a little bit about kind of the interesting start to your veterinary career, how that ended up and how you basically had to trek halfway across Canada to kind of restart and, and just what that looked like? Yeah, for sure. So I'll just make one small correction. Canada is so massive. It was a short trek, actually. We just moved from the province of Alberta, which is in Western Canada, to the province of BC, which is one province away or like one state away. It was a short distance in the scheme of Canada, but it was a huge, huge distance in the scheme of our life. And the reason it was so big is it required completely changing that perception we had of who we were as veterinarians and human beings, 
to step out of that and into the fear of being something, letting go of that story we'd always told ourselves and figuring out what the new story was going to be. That was the huge shift. So to back up, Isaiah, I went to vet school in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I grew up a prairie kid, the Canadian prairies, Alberta, on a mixed farm, grain and beef. I finished veterinary school and was ready to become the modern day female equivalent of James Harriet. That was my dream. I was going to work in rural mixed animal practice and I loved mixed animal rural practice. So we started in a small one doctor practice, an older vet looking to transition his practice and hoping these two young veterinarians who were married would uh, take over his practice. We quickly realized we needed more mentorship and moved to a bigger practice with three partner owners. And we were the two new associates. Eventually bought into that practice. And unfortunately, sort of the relationships that that practice was founded on were unhealthy. It had a really unhealthy foundation. And I definitely want to take ownership of our part in the practice breakdown. But at the same time, hindsight's always twenty twenty. And looking back, there was a very narcissistic owner and it almost destroyed our veterinary career, so to speak. So that was a low point. And I don't know how you pull up your bootstraps and keep going, but we ended up, well, I'm not sure what the next stage was. So we were pregnant, expecting our first child and ended up taking a locum position for six months in the province of British Columbia, well, we got our head back into a good space and decided what the next step was. And like I was saying, I think the big change for me, I can only speak to myself, I don't want to speak to what my husband went through, was letting go of this picture I'd painted of what my life as a veterinarian was going to be. I was going to be Dr. Harriet. I was going to work in rural mixed animal practice. In those days, you got out of vet school, you went into practice, you bought a practice or became a partner. When we got invited into the partnership, it seemed the right thing to do. And realizing that dream wasn't going to happen was probably the hardest part of the whole process. And then what's next? And then figuring out, well, if you're not Elaine, the mixed animal practitioner, who are you and what do you want to be? And so that period where we were expecting our first child, living in a little tiny bachelor suite above a vet clinic in Grand Forks, British Columbia, running a practice, the two of us, for an owner who had taken a six-month sabbatical, was really pivotal. We did a lot of entrepreneur training. We started looking at, well, do we want to be partners again? Do we want to be associates? What's the next step? And it's interesting, you know, leaving private practice never really, or going back to university at that stage, never really entered our minds. But we also were expecting a child in a few months and had to get things figured out. So that put a little pressure on and we ended up then buying a small animal practice in a beautiful mountainous region of British Columbia and started about the business of building a practice and building a life and a family. And life is funny. Sometimes the things that we think are the hardest and almost destroy us become the silver lining that when you get through the other side, like, wow, so glad that partner pushed our hands. And so glad we stepped out of that practice and started our own practice and reinvented ourselves as small animal vets. It's the best thing ever, Isaiah. Yeah, there's a lot of different thoughts that I had listening to you tell that story. And one is thinking about the picture that you painted and like the identity of who you were going to be and then having that be reshaped. Because I even think when you go, let's say, when people interact in person again, more regularly, like if you're at a, you know, know, friends are over and you meet someone new and you ask, what do you do for a living? And people associate a position, a role, like I'm a financial advisor, you're a veterinarian. They already have a preconceived notion of who Elaine or who Isaiah is based on what they do for a living. So when you had to kind of take a step back and say, I'm not going to be Dr. Harriet on the prairie doing this mixed animal thing, did it allow you to think about just what mattered in life? And what really was the things that you want to accomplish? Did you like remember kind of the headspace you were at? Anything you can share? Because I think there's a, probably so many other people that have had something either, you know, this practice is going to be mine. And let's say Dr. Douglas sold it to a consolidator and I'm not going to get my chance at ownership. I'm crushed. Like then what? How do I pick up what I thought was going to happen and move forward? Yeah. As you were saying that, it made me think of, I'm trying to find it, a, a quote I love. I found it. 
found it in my, I have my little journal up in front of me. And I'm going to just share this quote. Some of your listeners, I'm sure, have heard of Viktor Frankl. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right. He was a survivor of a Nazi war camp. And he said, everything can be taken from a person but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. I think that for me is is something that's always resonated. We control, if we choose to see it this way, we control our life. We are the narrator, the script writer of our own life. And so it's, are you going to let someone else dictate the choices you make? Or are you going to say, well, I can't control that they sold the practice to a consolidator, but I can control how I'm going to react to that. And I'm going to control what my next steps are. And you know, that doesn't happen like that. You have to step back. You have to lick your wounds sometimes. And sometimes you get into this really uncomfortable place for longer than you'd like to. But at a certain point, you have to own it. And you've got the choice to create the life you want or let everybody else dictate what your life's going to be. It comes down to that, don't you think, on some level? It's easy to yeah, say, maybe easy I for do. to say. No, it's easy for anyone to say, but I think there's a lot of truth to it. Anyone that's had success in life, however they want to define it, they can always trace it back to there was a break or there was someone that helped them out. And I think this is something I struggle with. No one is self-made as much as they may want to say that. Like there are people that work really hard to get where they're at, but they've always had someone or some break or some ability to have that next step that got them through. And then they can kind of show what they're able to do, right? So I think a lot of people struggle with that of being like, well, so-and-so, they were on third base and they were already going to score because of their situation. Well, Yes, there are some people that are blessed and fortunate with certain circumstances that not everyone gets, but there's a lot of luck in anything that we do. So, well, to get back I to agree. your, your question, just, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, it's Isaiah. No, 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 you're fine. I was thinking about getting back to where was my headspace or our headspace? And did we think of those big questions like, what do I want my life to be? What do I want my career to be? But going through that really scary and confusing time, we did. For my husband and I, it was always about our family, our relationship, and where our priority was at that time, because we didn't have children yet, was our relationship. And so whatever happened in that partnership split was happening to us, not to me, not to him. And we did talk about, is this the type of environment we want to be raising a child in, where there's so much personal relationship tension among the partners? And then we talked about, okay, if we buy our own practice and it's a rural mixed animal practice, what kind of family life is that going to be for our kids? We know how hard those like hats off to all you rural solo doctor practices out there. It is a hard life. And that factored into our decision. And then, you know, there's the reality of the situation. We were working in a province where most of the practice owners were older, boomer, or traditionalist generation veterinarians, mostly male-owned. Boy, at that time, it was almost all male-owned practices. The dominant partner who wanted us out was the president of the Alberta Vet Medical Association. And the reality was we did not feel we would have an easy time finding positions in Alberta in a mixed animal practice. That was our, I shouldn't say the reality of our mindset was that. That might not have been true, but we believed we would have a hard time. So that pushed us into a whole new province. And sometimes when you shift your physical location, it creates this opportunity to shift your mental perspective too. I see it smiling. It does, doesn't it? Absolutely. It totally does. Yeah. And then it came down to really thinking, well, if we buy a practice, it didn't take us long to decide we need to buy a practice and be owners because we do not ever want to be in such a difficult partner situation. And we really hadn't had good experiences as associate vets either. And then it came down to thinking about, well, if we buy a practice, what have we learned from our experiences in the first six years of veterinary medicine? And you learn as much from the bad experiences if you're willing to learn from them, I guess. So really, we did not want to have a culture of fear, a culture of control. We wanted to build a culture where our employees could come in and feel like they were part of something bigger than themselves and that they mattered to the owners of that practice. And we wanted them to enjoy showing up at work every day as much as we enjoyed showing up at work. So that was kind of the starting place then to grow our own practice, for sure. And you purchased the practice from a, 
again, you talked about it as a, a mountainous town in British Columbia, right? And the vet that you had bought out had been there for 30 years. So I think a lot of listeners is probably if they do become, you know, private practice owner, probably similar situation. So how was it being the new veterinarian in town and kind of stepping in the shoes of someone that had been there and everyone knew for quite a while? Oh, like everything. There's lots of layers to that. So on one hand, it was great because it's amazing still how much loyalty transfers from one doctor to another doctor. So it's great because we had clients that would come in and say, well, we loved Dr. Peter. He was such a kind and wonderful man. He was the James Harriet of the West Kootenai region. He was the first vet in the area. He worked very hard. He put his life into that practice. And so people loved him. So they would say things like, well, we know he wouldn't have sold to anyone. So you guys must be great too. But there was also the struggle that what we did is we bought in 1997 was when we bought our practice. And at that time, our province had just undergone one of the very early economic reviews for the province to say, what is the state of veterinarians in BC? And at that time, the West Kootenai region of British Columbia had the lowest fee schedule, the lowest salaries for all veterinarians and veterinary employees in the entire province. And we bought a practice that was the lowest price scale, like the lowest of the low in the entire province, Isaiah. So I have to backtrack and tell you a funny story. So what happened, we ended this six-month locum position. We were scrambling to buy a practice and we looked at practices throughout the region. At one point, I actually got out an old directory and just started calling veterinarians who had graduated in the 50s and 60s and asking them if they wanted to sell their practice, which was pretty entertaining. Some of the responses I got from some of those vets and we were getting desperate because the baby was coming. We finally finalized a price and got all the documents drawn up moved into a little hotel in the town where the practice was. I was eight months pregnant. Once everything was signed, we got in our little rusted out Toyota Tacoma, our Toyota pickup truck and drove back to Alberta, loaded up a U-Haul with all our furniture that had been in storage for six months. And guess who went into labor a month early? <laughs> U-Haul's loaded <laughs> and Elaine's having a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so we <laughs> had a baby, my brother and, and my husband, Rob, hauled the U-Haul back to British Columbia, unloaded it in our rental house, came back, picked me up, and I showed up there with the new baby, house of boxes, and an entire team to hire, and two weeks to get started in this new business. It was trial by fire in every regard. So the first thing we did is we said, okay, we're going to set the fees with where our provincial guidelines say they should be. And we went from a two-view x-ray costing $25 to $75. And our business model was completely focused on building relationships, customer service, relationships with our clients, relationships with our employees, relationships with our suppliers and our community. And we really kind of just put on blinders because it was damn scary, to be honest with you. Because why a lot of clients came to that practice was because they loved Dr. Peter. Why a lot of clients also came to that practice, it was the cheapest practice in the area. And we've just flipped the whole model on its head. We learned a lot through that process and we stayed true to what our goal was and to bring a higher level of serve. Not, it wasn't just we're putting the prices up. This is going to be a higher level of service and standard of care and upgrading everything from computerizing the practice to x-ray equipment, anesthesia, everything, and trying to get it to a different standard. And either people were really excited about what we were doing or people were really negative. There was a lot of pushback, a lot of uncomfortable situations in a small community. But at the end of the day, it's your practice to develop a vision and to be flexible and to try new things and see what works and what doesn't work, but also to build what resonates with you from your team to the level of service and the kind of care you're providing. So two questions. First, how did you figure out that was the practice you wanted to own? Knowing from a cheapest of the cheap, so that's going to come in and you know that, like when you review those documents, you know you're going to have to go and raise prices and Everything that I've been told, right? I've never bought a veterinary clinic and been the new veterinarian. You don't want to change a lot when you first walk in the door and do yeah, that. So you went ahead and said, we're going to make a lot of these changes. <laughs> we changed everything. <laughs> and, 
Second thing with that, did you keep most of the staff that was there or did you like how much retention from Dr. Peter to your new practice? Yeah, great question. So it was a share purchase and the owner laid off all of his employees. It was a small one doctor practice. So there was only two employees to interview and we did not retain any of the employees. And in a small community too, we were met with a lot of suspicion. We didn't keep the employees. We changed the pricing. We renovated the building. We brought in computers. But during our six-month locoming, and I'd always had an interest in management. I would call it management at that time, not leadership. And I knew, I shouldn't say I, Rob and I knew what we wanted to do with the practice and the culture. I didn't even have these words at that time in my profession, Isaiah, but the culture we wanted to build wasn't going to be possible with those employees. Some of them had been with the previous owner for many, many years. And the style of practice, the level of care was just really different than what our vision was. So we made huge changes in those first years. And it was definitely bumpy sometimes. And we were surrounded by other practice owners who were following that same sort of high volume, low cost. Diagnostics weren't really a big thing. Your dog's itchy. Well, here's some steroids and antibiotics. And it's no judgment of anyone. It's just where veterinary medicine was at that time in some small communities. So how did we decide? I guess, really, how did we decide on that practice? It was desperation. That practice was for sale. The owner was motivated. The price was right. And we were broke. That's the real story. And it's like, well, the baby is coming, I guess, a month earlier than we thought, as it turned out. And we got another mouth to feed. And we got a mountain of debt. And we got to do something. And we don't want to be treated like second-class employees anymore. We don't want to go to work feeling like, should I say good morning to my partner? Or is he going to take my head off? So we kind of felt like we were running out of options and this was available and it was in a community. We loved the area. And so then you just make the decision and then you work to make it work, work to make it work. Yeah. I love the no BS answer of, well, we were broke. It was cheap. It was for sale. And he was motivated. Like, no, that's perfect. That sounds like a good good reason to move forward. I wish I could make up some uh, fancier metric that we used, Isaiah, but that was pretty much it. <laughs> We um, did We did create a business plan, of course, to get financing. But yeah, then it was just put in the hours and make it happen. You go through like the initial piece, the hiring, the changes, all these other pieces, and the practice starts to grow. You add on to the team. So even though leadership and culture wasn't kind of in your lexicon at the moment, what did you, like looking back, what was your development as the leader? What was kind of the culture that you wanted to instill with hires? And how did you go about was there a favorite interview question or how did you, I guess, navigate the process of growing that team over time? And can you talk a little bit about how that process happened and what you saw from growth, I guess, from the business? I'm going to be super honest with you again here because I think listeners need to know this. I didn't know what I was doing and I just trusted my gut a lot, did a huge amount of reading on management, went to a lot of CE and here's the really honest part, made a hell of a lot of mistakes, Isaiah. And was open-minded enough to learn from those mistakes, was humble enough to say, I really don't know what I'm doing, but I stepped up to the plate. I picked up the bat. I got to keep trying to hit the ball. And sometimes I'm going to connect and knock it out of the park. And equally as often, or I would say more often, I'm going to miss or I'm going to just do a little bunt. It was just a matter of a real desire to create something that was ours that we loved going to work every day. And I knew I'm a people person. I like figuring out why people tick. I knew it came down to the people on our team that I knew what people wanted because I knew what I wanted as an employee. I wanted to feel like I was valued, like my opinions mattered. And I saw, I think a big part of what we did in those early years was I saw a lot of leaders I had worked for would hire people, hire great people, throw them into the job with zero training, with zero skills training, but also no clear expectations of what they expected from that employee. And then they would sit back and watch them fail and go put it all on the employee. Well, look at this person. I did my due diligence and I looked at their references and hired a great person, but they're terrible. We've got to let them go. And so from that, I knew 
people need to have clear boundaries. They need to have a clear set of expectations. They need to have a clearly defined job description so they know what they're supposed to be doing on the job. And they need training. So right from year one, we had monthly staff meetings with the entire team where we closed our office for a full morning. And I like speaking. I like developing humans. That's just something I enjoy doing. So we would have meetings about customer service. How do you say no to a client while still saying yes? I would buy tapes from the gurus like Mark Operman down in the US. And back in the days, we'd listen to cassette tapes in our staff meetings from these management experts. And so I think your question of sort of how I developed as a leader was I had an interest in it. And I had a really strong desire to create a great workplace for my people because it's a lot of work to hire and train people. And when you've got high turnover, I didn't have time for that with a busy practice. Any favorite management books, people, and this can be today, not necessarily the cassettes or things that were back before, but anything that comes top of mind that you like today, that would be a good recommendation for someone that's an aspiring practice owner or a young practice owner, or even just a practice owner that's done it for 30 years, I guess anybody. I think just start reading things that resonate with you. Read about positive psychology. Read about all kinds of different leadership principles. I think as you were talking, I was thinking about my journey in leadership, and I think I really hit the sweet spot about 10 years in at figuring out how to be a leader and not just manage people, but how to try and motivate them to manage themselves and to give them the space to do that. And I still have this tendency, Isaiah, and I fight with myself. I like things done my way. (laughs) And I like to tell people what I want and give them the tools to do it and then leave it up there, then stop meddling and let them do it, which is, you know, it's not a bad technique. But now that I'm studying coaching and when I look back at some of the aha moments I had in the last five to 10 years of my leadership journey owning a practice, it was when I got really frustrated that I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get through to the team or to an employee. And I'd step back and go, huh, maybe I should ask them for their ideas or ask why they're putting up barriers to doing it the way I want and actually listen to them. So I think that would be the leadership tip I would give to people is start looking at a coach approach to leadership. Start reading about what is authentic leadership. What is your why? Like Simon Sinek's got some great stuff for leaders. I love his stuff. You know, Brene Brown, how to be vulnerable in a way that empowers your team. That vulnerability, if you've read, have you read any of Brene's stuff? Sheepishly, I'm going to say no. I know who she is and I've seen some of her stuff, but I can't tell you I've read one of her books. So yeah, start looking at those things. What I say now is, you know, we need to move from telling our people what we want and having the right, and feeling like as leaders, we have to have all the right answers to instead asking the right questions. And that feeds back into our early conversation when I was kind of struggling to find my words, honestly, Isaiah, is how are we going to meet these challenges? The way we did things 30 years ago isn't going to meet the challenges that we're going to face five years in the future. It's going to be asking questions and mobilizing the collective intelligence of your entire team to find answers. Because if you do your due diligence and you hire great people and you hire for diversity and you give them your expectations, you believe in them, you truly start believing in your people. Because a lot of leaders don't do that. We say we believe in them, but we still think we know best. If you actually start believing in them, asking them powerful questions, and then listening to the answers, I think that's how we're going to meet some of these challenges ahead of us. Any aha moment stick out of a spot where it's like, oh, this clicked or a story with a particular member of the team? So I think it was probably about four or five years before we sold the practice. We had a real shift in the local veterinary community. A neighboring practice lost an associate, was down from two doctors to one doctor. Actually, two neighboring practices went from two to one to solo practices again. And those owners had to really put up some strong boundaries of not accepting new clients and saying no because their doctor was burning out. We had another local practice owner, unfortunately, very sadly, develop multiple myeloma and die very suddenly. And his practice closed in our community. And we were just slammed busier. This sort of boutique style practice that was low volume, high quality, suddenly had massive demand. 
And we had this challenge of maintaining our level of care and our quality of excellence around medicine and customer service, and while still meeting the demand of all these new clients. And many clients who really didn't want what we had to offer, but they had no other option because their doctor was no longer there. And so one of the things that came up was that we just can't do one dental a morning. We've got to be able to slam some surgeries through. And it is great that we have all these protocols for safety and we don't want to compromise patient care, but how are we going to get more efficient? How do we become more efficient? So I led multiple staff meetings. Rob and I would brainstorm. I say I, it was always my husband and I, but I was sort of the face of leadership because I would lead the team meetings and I liked the communication piece. So we would take it to the team. I would roll out the plan. Here's why this is, I'd give them the why, lead with the why. Here's why this is going to work and feel great after our meeting and walk away. Two weeks later, nothing has changed. And I just was so frustrated. I'm like, what is wrong with these people? They're great people, but like, we can't be finishing up surgeries at two in the afternoon. The clients are like, what am I going to do? So I was out for a cross-country ski and I'm skiing along. And that was the aha moment. I'm just like frustrated. I'm ready to just start firing people like, bah! I hate admitting that, but I was so frustrated, Isaiah. And then it was like out in the woods, which is where I do my best thinking. It's like, oh, for God's sakes, Elaine, you don't have all the answers. Why don't you tell them the problem, tell them what you need, and then shut up and listen to them? So Isaiah, in the next meeting, I just laid it on the table for them and said, look, I've hit the wall. I don't have the answers. We have to meet this demand and we have to be efficient while still making sure that we maintain our quality of care and our patient standards. And I believe in you guys. You guys are here in the trenches every day. I think you have the answers how we can do this. And I gave them the guidelines that we need to see this many surgeries per day. We need to make sure everybody gets their lunch break. And we need to make sure the doctor doing surgery is wrapped up by this time. And they kind of looked at me like, oh, she's leaving this to us. She usually tells us what she wants. But you know what? It was a different generation of employees and they took hold of my challenge and they figured it out. I left them on their own to brainstorm and come up with ideas, which they did, which we tweaked and implemented over the months ahead. And that was a huge leadership moment for me to say, it's not enough to just hire good people and not meddle. You also need to learn how to empower them and believe in them, like truly believe in them. And yeah, that was that moment for me. And you talked about this story was four to five years before you sold and you and your husband sold your practice to an associate, which is an interesting transition in and of itself. So not to get into the nitty gritty, but A, how did you find the associate and have the confidence that this was the person to kind of take this baby, take this thing that you developed over all these years that helped you and your family have the ability to have the financial success and the things that you hoped and dreamed for, right? So you have this thing and how do you transition that? And then what were those conversations? What did she, because again, it's the associate, the current owners of she, right? And kind of how did she let you know, hey, I'm really interested. And what did that look like? There is two sides to that. And I'm going to just back up to when we bought the practice and you asked about how it was when everybody loved this practice owner for who'd been there for 30 years and how do they transition loyalties to the new owners. That was also a real pivotal leadership moment for me is I saw how sad his clients were that he was leaving and retiring. And all we heard for the first six months to a year was how wonderful the previous doctor was, how much they missed him, all the stories about different pets and how he'd help them. And I, no word of a lie within, a year for sure, if not before, they'd all forgotten about him and they thought we were great or they thought we were terrible and moved to the neighboring practice. (laughs) But the point of that was I realized, okay, I'm going to be Dr. Peter someday. I'm going to be retiring someday. And when I am gone, they're going to forget about me in six months. And now that I'm on the other side of that, guess what? I'm in a little town of 3,500 people, a community that our practice probably drew on a population of about 25 to 30,000 people. Pretty small. Guess what? They've all forgotten about me. <laughs> you know what? We see each other at the post office and it's great, but they don't care about Elaine the vet. 
So that was a lesson to me in do what you do because you love what you do. Take pride in providing great service. Care about your relationships with your clients and their pets, but know that those aren't the relationships that are going to sustain you. When the shit hits the fan, (laughs) those relationships are your professional relationships, but the ones you build outside your practice, your friends, your true friends, not the ones that call you up at one in the morning when their dog is sick and your kids are in the same daycare, the true friends that are going to have your back when you get slagged on social media, your family, because they're the ones that are going to be there when you aren't Dr. Elaine owner of West Kootenai Animal Hospital anymore. So I took that lesson into, or we took that lesson into hiring our first associate and letting go of our egos. After, I don't know how many years, it was probably 10, 12 years that it was just my husband and I. And then as the practice grew and we brought on more doctors, remembering what it was like to be that new vet in a practice and to be the last one that clients asked for. And saying, I am hiring another vet because I want to be able to go camping with my kids once in a while. And I want to be able to get back into doing the things I love, riding my bike every day. So if I sabotage their efforts to bond with my clients, it is going to actually be worse for me. So what do I actually do as an owner to make sure I lift these new associates up? that I build up their esteem in my client's eyes, that I make them feel like they are as important as I am. And how do I let go of my own ego and do that? I think that is the question we need to ask. So that was the place Rob and I came from. And that allowed us to build this team of associate vets. We had two when we, so there was four of us in the practice when we retired or when we sold the practice. And they felt like they had a voice. They felt like they were important. And we were able to create an atmosphere where everybody learned from each other. There really weren't big egos, but it started with the owners not having big egos. And then when the doctor who purchased our practice became an associate, we actually, this is the one side, we actually came from a, from a mindset of, okay, we've been in veterinary medicine now for 20 years or I guess at that time it would have been about 15 years. What's the plan? What's the transition plan? And so this veterinarian expressed that she might want to own a practice one day. How are we going to nurture that? And how are we going to start bringing her into the fold to learn some of those management skills? And so we started doing that fairly early on with the hope that she would eventually want to own. And then that led into, do we want to do a partnership? And honestly, from our perspective, we thought, I wouldn't want to be a partner with a husband and wife vet team. Husband, wife, partner. The partner is the odd guy out. She's never going to be able to have her vote count. And it was at a point where we were ready to transition. So I guess the simple answer, my long-winded answer, I apologize, Isaiah, the simple answer is to let go of your ego, to realize that Everybody brings something of value to the team. And if you have a culture where they can feel safe, they can feel heard and appreciated, and you are transparent with your goals, you can start forming that relationship that can lead into ownership right from their first day on the job. And then the flip side to that is to make sure that you are ready to let go of the reins. That was the other thing. I think a lot of times, uh, practice owners, it's your baby. Like you've nurtured it. You've grown it from a solo doctor practice in an old cinder block building to a new state-of-the-art hospital. You've put your sweat, your blood and your tears literally into building that practice. And so for a lot of people in their head, they say, I'm ready to transition. I'm tired. I'm ready for a change. But in their heart, they're not ready to let go of the reins. They're not ready to see someone else make changes and do it differently than they did. So I think that was the other key. We were ready. We were ready. And I was the one, because I had led the people, that had to really do a bit of introspection and reflection and say, okay, are you ready to see her do things differently than you did? And are you ready to support that? And I was. 
And so then from there, then it becomes the logistics of, well, what's the practice worth? How do we figure that out? How do we make sure that people don't get greedy, that this progresses? And we had a real strong desire to leave our employees and our clients in the hands of this doctor because we really respected her. She was a good person. How did you know that you were ready? Was there a moment or did that take time? Like you thought it and then it wasn't quite there? Well, I've told the story of Frank and Zelda. There's a little children's book my husband and I used to read to our kids all the time about a husband and wife who owned a pizza restaurant. And just the short end of the story is Frank would look at Zelda some days and say, Zelda, we need a plan. And then the next day as they're struggling in their little pizza shop, Zelda would say, Frank, we need a plan. So Rob and I would always look at each other and say, Frank, we need a plan. And as the practice grew, we kept trying to create a plan because we didn't have a practice manager. So I was a vet, a leader, a manager. Rob did a lot of the financial end of the practice. And it came to a point, especially with for myself, that I realized I need to either hire a manager and just get back to doing what I love, which is veterinary medicine. Because, But I do love leadership too. Or I need to stop being a vet, period, and just lead and manage this team and really dig into it. Or we need to sell. And because we had an associate interested, that helped make the decision. But it really came to a breaking point. We had gone on a holiday and to Africa, our dream trip. Our kids were at a stage, we traveled a ton with our children growing up off the beaten path. They were starting their own lives. And it was the first trip my husband and I took, just the two of us. And it was actually like a jolt that I needed to make a big change. It was a really pivotal moment. We were on a camping safari, listening to this song about basically when you get to the end of your life and look back on your life, what do you want? And I just knew, you know what? It's time for a new adventure. I need something different. And that started discussions, started the ball rolling. And it was two years after that moment that we were actually free of the practice. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. That is powerful to think through because yeah, it's so many years of doing something that is yours to then say, this is not going to be mine. And am I okay with that is, is hard. And maybe it comes from my philosophy of not defining myself. Like in our conversation, you talked about how in our culture, we so define ourselves by what we do, not who we are. And I always kind of pushed, it's weird in a way, because I was always, I wanted to be a vet from the time I was a little kid. I had this dream of living the James Harriet life. And then through this whole journey, it shifted to realizing, you know what, we're so much more than what we do. I've got so many other interests outside of veterinary medicine. And so I think some of that maybe made it easier that I didn't just define myself as the owner of a veterinary practice and a veterinarian. I'm also a mom. I'm also an artist. I'm also an avid outdoor adventurist. I'm also a traveler. All these other things that owning a practice forced us to put on hold for a lot of years. And we just were ready to explore those other things. I don't love the word retirement. I wouldn't say that you've retired by any means because we talked about coaching and some of the other things that you're doing. So thinking about like, as we wrap up, but what are you doing today? Because I know you're doing some like volunteering and traveling and the coaching. Can you just kind of give those that are listening the scope of what you've been able to do since selling and moving on to the next stage? This is the fun stage. So prior to selling the practice, I had always loved volunteer work and had done some spay neuter projects in different areas. The first one with my daughter when she was 11 in Mexico. And then I went with a group of equine vets and a wonderful organization, the Equitarian Initiative, to Costa Rica. And my husband had always kind of wondered if he would enjoy it. We got time away from our practice. He did not want to think about veterinary medicine. So he kind of put up some barriers like, ah, I don't know. And then I guess it was a year before we actually sold, I convinced him or we decided, I don't know if I convinced him, but he decided to join me on a trip to Ecuador with World Vets. And our 17-year-old daughter joined us as well on that trip. And he had a blast. And so that opened a door to say, okay, what are we going to do when we sell the practice, after we sell the practice? What's the next step? And neither of us really knew. And it was a pretty intense year, making sure the transition happened. We just decided to put on our backpacks and head off and start volunteering around the world. 
And he had done one volunteer trip on his own to Botswana with a group called the Canadian Animal Assistance Team. And so we ended up going back to Botswana for seven weeks. And from there, that led to cycling around Cuba, hooking up with a group of volunteers in Havana, and working with a project in cooperation with the veterinary college in Havana, along with a Canadian and American group of volunteers that do work in Cuba. That led us to a volunteer hospital in Grenada or on an island outside of Grenada. Led us to riding our bikes around New Zealand to Eastern Europe and adventuring there. So during all this time, Isaiah, I had the opportunity to step back from being a direct leader and being a team member again. And I really enjoyed that experience. And I really started to look at, well, how do we bring these people from all over the world? There's cultural barriers, language barriers, different levels of skill, really challenging conditions, like, you know, under a tree with expired suture and injectable anesthetics, I find myself amputating a leg. Like, how can we do this in these conditions? And yet we struggle to create effective teams and cooperation in our practices back home. Like, what's the secret sauce here? So that, I got really interested in that and watching the leaders, some amazing leadership on these projects, some leadership, which I struggled with, and looking at that and figuring out, okay, what's the next step for Elaine? And I really realized one of my strengths is with people, is bringing people together and lifting them up, creating community and connections. And so that started me back to university. So first a certificate in values-based leadership, which is really like Simon Sinek's work about what's your why. It's about looking at purpose and values and how our values and our talents on teams can combine to create a really powerful purpose for that team. And also looking at how leadership influences organizational culture. And from there, then I decided to do the executive coaching certificate. And I'm right now making a decision if I want to roll it into a master's in leadership, which I probably will. We'll see. I I said that. I could hear the energy in my voice change when I said I probably will. (laughs) So it's so fun to have the space to play and explore and figure out what the next step is. It's not easy to reinvent yourself for sure. But how fortunate are we that we can have that opportunity in our society? So that's kind of where I am now and hoping, of course, all the volunteer work is on hold. I'm really looking at being much more selective about the projects that I volunteer with. I've gotten involved on a board of one organization. I love volunteering in our own country, in Canada's northern regions, with Canadian Animal Assistance Team and Vets Without Borders, a Canadian organization. And really, once you start digging into that world of volunteerism, it's like the onion again. There's so many layers. And really trying to do the research to make sure the organizations and projects we align with are actually making positive change, that we're there for the right reasons. And there's a component of sustainability and partnering with the country and the local people. And ideally, we love if there's also a component of environmentalism or conservation efforts involved. So that is something I still, it just fuels my love of the profession and something I want to keep doing along with the coaching and consulting work. Perfect. Thank you for sharing and opening up. And again, I know we've gone way over (laughs) the time that I initially thought, but this has been fantastic. I've switched around kind of the last question. I started with what does success look like? And I kind of got to the point where I'm like, ah, I want to change what, what it was. And it was a soapbox topic. And I've switched it now to, again, I swiped this. We joked about it earlier. I'm going to swipe different ideas, which is steal with integrity and pride. If I see something I like on another podcast, there's a podcast I've listened to. And he always says, what's one question that the guest has for him? And so I guess I'll pose that to you. Is there any question that you'd want to ask me? And I'm happy to take a stab at it. Well, can I ask you two questions, Isaiah? You can. Cool. I'm curious, when did you record your first podcast? And the flip side of that, this is the first question, by the way, this isn't two. And how many have you recorded to date? Yeah, so this will be number 71. So I released it April 1st of 2019. But I'm trying to remember when I recorded it. I probably recorded it in March. And it was with Mary Berg, who is a member of Vet Partners with me. And 
we sat at the same table when I joined Vet Partners and I walked into a room full of people I didn't know. So I sat down and she was beyond friendly and we just started chatting. And she was naturally the first one I wanted to connect with and talk. And oddly enough, outside of myself and my wife, she was the first one that found out that we were having our son because I found out via a FaceTime when we found out the gender because I was in Florida and I was right next to Mary because Emily called me really quick. So it was always just one of those funny things that when I see Mary, it's like she's just we just have a unique connection, I guess, from that. So very thankful that she was willing to jump on and, and record with me when I had no idea what I was doing. And I'm still learning, right? Like podcasting is not, it's definitely so much of an art of trying to figure out how you want to do it. So tell me again, you're on episode 71, did you say? It'll be 71 when we release it. 71. Yep. And what was the year you started? 2019. 2019. That's amazing. And I love the connection piece. Like that is when you say, what are the struggles for veterinary medicine? What are we doing right the connection piece is so huge. I love this. And I just see, especially during the pandemic, there is this need we all have to connect with each other. Platforms like yours have opened that up, which is wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I get to have a lot of fun. and I learn a ton. And I mean, this conversation, I pull away so much of it that, again, anyone that whether they talk to me or not, or I even know who they are, they can learn something from it. But then I do too selfishly, but it's fun to be able to amplify people doing good things and share experiences and I think storytelling is like one of the oldest things in human nature and we love storytelling. And that's the one thing I would take away from this discussion was so many powerful stories. So thank you for that. You know what? Our shared humanity is is what it's all about. Hey, I feel like I wasn't on the top of my game for this podcast, but I'm still glad I was here. And hopefully I won't sound like too much of a babbling old lady, <laughs> but I have a, my final question, because I don't know if you've ever been asked this. And as a veterinarian, I'm super curious to hear about your pets or maybe a story that demonstrates to your listeners why our connection with animals is so important or so important to you. Never been asked this. And this is actually going to be really interesting. So my wife is deathly allergic to animals. So we have oh, no, no pets. <laughs> I did, however, adopt a dog six, seven years ago. And I never in a million years at the time I was dating someone I thought would be a long-term relationship. And that was kind of a dog that we got together. And when that didn't work out, I was then living with my best friend in Indianapolis. And when I met Emily and found out that like that wasn't a disqualifier because she was a fantastic person and something that I wanted to pursue as someone that I was trying to find a wife and she certainly met all those criteria. So it was a really hard situation. Cause I remember my mom asking me like, Hey, what are you going to do with Brody? And so he ended up staying with my best friend, which I've gotten some grief from my other buddies that I let someone else keep the dog that I adopted. But he lives with my best friend and his wife and their daughter down in Atlanta, Georgia. Now he used to live in India. He moved when he met his fiance and they're down in Atlanta, but he ended up keeping Brody. So we don't have any pets. I would love to do that at some point if they ever found, but yeah, Emily's just so allergic. It's bad. We would come over when we were dating. She'd want to watch a movie and it would be like, take something for her allergies. And she'd be like asleep in 10 minutes. And it'd be like, he'd be asleep on one side. She'd be asleep on the other side. Just me watching a movie by myself. I'm like, well, this is fun. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? I can relate to that. I had a rabbit, a pet rabbit when I met my husband in vet school. And for some weird reason, my rabbit just hated my now husband, Rob. He would come over to my apartment and the rabbit would like box at him and when we got married, I did find a new home for my rabbit because she was stressed. It was time for a change. So sometimes I think I made the right choice. Most days I think I made the right choice. <laughs> yeah. I know I made the right choice. <laughs> but real quick, just to follow up on that. And again, I know it's a quick question, but it's a longer answer. My family, we grew up like very much outdoors camping. And so like interested animals and watching like National Geographic and nature documentaries that are two, three hours long, like that's what my younger brother and I did a lot. So that was kind of our passion. And the fact that neither of us ever said we wanted to be a veterinarian is kind of surprising. Now they look back at being like, that was pretty much what my mom steered us towards was outdoors and nature and animals. And I grew up on a hog farm. So like there was so much of that in my life, but it wasn't ever, Hey, I want to be a veterinarian. For me, it was always sports. I was never good enough to do. <laughs> I was like, I want to go be a professional athlete. And then just kind of morphed from there. Animals have always been something that I've really loved and enjoyed. What I found is I love what I do now. I wouldn't trade what I do, but it's the people within veterinary medicine that are special. And I really enjoy working with them. And I see it as something that it goes back kind of to that interest that I had a long time ago. And I have so much to learn and it's fun to try to 
learn a little bit clinically and I still have a long way to go. I don't know much, right? But I can pick up little things here and there. But yeah, for me, it's like there's a huge opportunity. And I think veterinary medicine has been neglected from what my counterparts have done historically. And I think there's room for improvement. And that was naturally why I said, hey, I think this could be a, a good fit and the people are awesome. So why wouldn't I want to work with them? That's really cool. And I think that's our connection is I love what animals bring into our lives. Why I love being a vet is I love nurturing that bond we share with the animal world. And it gives us that connection that humans need. Humans need on a really sort of fundamental level, a connection with the natural world. But what I always really loved was the relationships. And with this new, after studying leadership, after figuring out, you know, what's the next step? What are my strengths? What can I bring to my people, the people behind the vet clinic doors? And that's kind of where I'm going with this new coaching, consulting, creating connections in our profession. And if I can just help one person feel less alone, feel like their journey has been survived or other people in this profession can thrive, and here's some tools that might help you, that's success. That'll be awesome. I think that's a perfect spot to leave it. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. And I think you're going to hold the record, at least for right now, longest episode, but I think we could probably easily go at least another 45 minutes to an hour and have more questions, but... Feel free to edit. If I was just like babbling on, I say, no, no, we're going to leave all this in. We're going to get, oh, we're going to keep that so? record. I, oh, yeah. you know, it, as much as I like, I try and just think, okay, I'm just having a talk with Isaiah here. Just be yourself, Elaine. But it's hard because you don't really hear yourself until you go listen to the episode. And then maybe it's my generation or my age. I have a hard time putting myself out on social media and hearing my own voice. And it's like, oh my God, did I really say that? I sound like an idiot. So I probably won't even listen to it, Isaiah. I'll just like... <laughs> you can share it with your friends, but I yeah, don't know. I'm... They can be pretty harsh. I don't know if I should. <laughs> <laughs> my kids, I won't share it with them. <laughs> I appreciate you coming on though and spending the time. This was a blast. I had a great time and learned a lot. So thank you. Well, thank you. And genuinely, I did too. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.